You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partner, Ken Davis and Sons. been looking forward to interviewing Mike Wildenstein for this podcast for a number of years and I caught up with him when we were both invited to speak in Denmark, um, a country uh, on the Atlantic coast of Europe and uh, as you'll find out Mike knows Denmark far better than I. I always knew he was a heavy horse sure and in this podcast uh, we find out why he has such an interest in heavy horses and uh, especially in, in, in working heavy horses, which of course there's few of in the world, but he's got experience of that. He learned some rudimentary basics, as he described it, of shoeing horses uh, before he went into the army. And having left the army, he tried to get into the Cornell Farrier course In the end, he succeeded, and of course, eventually, he came to be the uh, instructor at Cornell, extremely well known uh, around the world for its unusual course of just four students per year, and he instructed there for almost 20 years, and he taught the vets at the Cornell Veterinary School and farriers, as I say, that were his students. And he also had to do all the remedial shoeing that came through Cornell. Well, I'm going to let you listen to this podcast. Mike is quite a quiet-spoken guy and he is quite concise in what he says. And I guess that comes from maybe his military background. I'm here at the Hoven e Centrum, which is the conference in Denmark run by Henrik Berger and his company. And I've taken the opportunity to speak to one of the other speakers at the conference, who is Mike Wildenstein. Now, there are very few farriers with the fellowship in the world, and there's even fewer who are non-British, probably, I think, only five. And there's even less of them that have passed the Fellowship of the Worshipful Company of Farriers with honours. But Mike is one of those. And so I'm really glad to have the chance to speak to him. We've come out of the conference. We're going to have to go back in soon because both of us are speakers here. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Simon. Okay. Now, just tell me, what was your uh, first horse experience? Well, I actually grew up with horses when I was a child. My parents had ponies in the backyard, so we were on them bareback riding around the countryside. Okay. So, what, not before you could walk? Well, soon after. Almost. Okay. And uh, that was just a mixture of horses, was it? Well, those were ponies. And uh, then as I uh, matured and into my teen years, I had friends and family that had uh, larger horses. We had uh, horses on the farm, so there was a a variety of horses to ride and work with. And and were those working horses, or were they uh, sports horses, or...? 
Well, I wouldn't call them sport horses, okay. uh, recreation horses. Okay. And then uh, we also had work horses that uh, were used in the forest. Okay, so so you grew up, obviously, from a very early age. And uh, I, I was going to, to say, and how did you become a farrier? But, of course, you've just mentioned the fact that you had work horses in the forest. So what was the job of those work horses? Well, because your production level is so much smaller, you create less damage to the forest. And uh, they're extremely effective in short distances, and the horse learns its job and it goes on its own, so you don't need to be there with it. So this is in the, in the timber industry? Yes, yes. And uh, so my grandfather had the capacity to put shoes on. It was rather rough and it was rather uh, spontaneous when you lost a shoe, but uh, they were shod and they, they weren't crippled. So I learned rudimentary basics from him. And at what age was that? I was in my teens. Okay. But, and did you go directly into becoming, uh, or going to farrier school, or learning to be a farrier? I, I did not. No. I did not. I was in the military, and then I went to school to be a, a natural sciences teacher. But uh, in the military, I was a cold water survival instructor trainer. And the type of education, or the type of teaching that one does in the military, is not compatible with uh, public schooling. And so I had some trouble in my first semester of teaching public schools and decided to turn my hobby, which was showing horses, into a profession. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to be accepted to Rocky Iron School in Toronto, Nova Scotia. It was a short six-week course on shoeing draft horses. And I had hoped to be able to learn how to make a shoe while I was there for six weeks. We did that in the first day, and then uh, we struggled for the rest of the six weeks and improved our skills on a daily basis. So that was your start. So that was six weeks at school. But I have to tell you something, Mike, that was six weeks more than I did at various school. Well, that was just my first one. After that, uh, I had been trying to get into the Cornell course for years, but there was about 200 applicants for every two places. And so while I was at Rocky Iron School in Nova Scotia, he called down to Cornell and said, I have a hot one for you. And so with his recommendation, I was able to get in the next semester and take the 16-week course there. Well, I, I didn't know that you went to Cornell, but of course, when I first knew you, uh, you were the instructor at Cornell, and you were there for many years. Um, so you didn't go straight from being a, a student there to being an instructor, did you? No, sir. Uh, I actually had uh, worked on my own and, and apprenticed both at... Uh, on the thoroughbred track on the western coast of the United States and I also uh, helped out the Chris brothers in times when their regulars were on vacation in the winter and they were known for shoeing the Budweiser Clydesdales and other horses and I established my own business which was primarily heavy horses and heavy hitch horses and so these are horses used for in the advertisement industry and so I followed those horses around to the different shows and places they went and then uh, I fell in love with a Danish woman, moved to Denmark for five years, and uh, took a lot of courses here in Denmark, learned the language as best I could. Yeah. And then in 91, I uh, was invited to apply for the position at Cornell and uh, was accepted. Okay, and that was probably the point I got to know you, I think. Well, we actually met before that. Uh, one of your first trips to the States was at uh, a laminitis symposium that Dr. Yeah. Rick Redden put on, and we, we met in the, 
uh, at the bar and well, <laughs> discussed. Do you know, <laughs> there's, there's starting to be a theme in these podcasts of <laughs> yes, people yes. meeting me at the bar. I'm starting <laughs> to get worried about it, Mike. <laughs> but I mean, it, it was a, it was a great experience. Those, and I think I went to about eight out of ten years, and uh, so much so in the same hotel, the same week. And I worked out I was spending five percent of my life, but not in the bar. Five percent of my life at that at that conference, and um, uh, you know, so there there was some great opportunities to meet. It was a big conference. Absolutely. It? Now, uh, so your time at Cornell was h- how many years? Well, I spent nineteen years there yeah. as the instructor. Okay, and of course, it, it's unusual for a school if you want to call it a school, because it has, you have four students a year, don't you? And that's the maximum. Well, the course was uh, 16 weeks long, and that, that had been established in the 50s and uh, continued through today. And when I started there, I had two students, and uh, we improved the size of the shop, we improved the number of students, uh, we improved the clientele, uh, also added to the amount of lectures that the veterinary students got, the agricultural students got, and, but your duties were also as a remedial farrier there for the, for the veterinary school? Absolutely. Every lame horse that came through the front door, if they needed radiographs, we were pulling shoes, cleaning up hooves. If they needed remedial shoeing, we did that. We were treating horses as they were recovering from a surgery, putting corrective shoes on before they stood up. And it wasn't just horses. It was cows, llamas, alpacas, giraffes, whatever came through the front door. Well, that, that must have given you a great opportunity to expand your knowledge of uh, uh, the various um, conditions, diseases, injuries that occur to the to the leg and the foot of the horse. And, you know, I, I know you went on and I've said in the introduction to be a fellow, but especially the associate tests you quite hard on, on your knowledge and skills in that department, don't they? So it's a great place to to acquire those skills and knowledge. Absolutely, it was a great learning experience. And while I was there, I was, uh, we all get in our own bubbles and uh, uh, I was treated as something special, but I wanted to know if I was had the knowledge. So it inspired me to take the English examination and uh, it was actually quite difficult, did a lot of studying to get through it. And I also had a great deal of help from some great farriers like John Ford. Yeah, you mentioned John Ellis. And and, uh, uh, Mr. Ellis and uh, also the people at Melton Mowbray at the Animal Defense Center and uh, just some amazing people. And it was uh, an incredible learning experience to to pass that standard. Well, Well, I would say about the associate, in fact, any farrier exam, you know, who is the better farrier? The farrier that studied for an exam and failed, or the farrier that hasn't even gone for it? it it's still got to be, even if you fail, the, by putting yourself through the mincer, shall we say, and of knowledge and skills, you, you come out as a better farrier, whatever the result of the exam, don't you? Oh, I certainly agree. It, it, it takes a lot of courage to step outside of your bubble and, and go ahead and do that, especially if you have a great clientele, you're making a living, and uh, everybody loves you, of course. And so you put yourself in front of uh, a group of other farriers. It, it was a tough deal, but uh, I, I certainly would recommend it for any farrier. There is so much to learn, and it never stops. So go ahead and get outside of your comfort zone and challenge yourself. Okay. Um, all right, so I know that in your, your thesis for your fellowship, 
uh, you covered white line disease and its treatment. And um, of course, I'm never quite sure, as you probably know, whether it's really CD toe, though that's even an inaccurate term, or I, I prefer now to say keralytic disease, which might sound even complicated even more. But of course, my problem with a white line disease is that anatomically it's not the white line that's being uh, eaten away. You're correct. Our verbiage has changed since the time I took that. And when I look back at the study, I think, uh, what rudimentary stuff I talked about. But, uh, you know, that's part of evolution of education and knowledge is that, uh, by gosh, I hope we, we take a step forward every year. Yeah. But, but going on to that, I was interested in your treatment, which I think, because it is still a problem for farriers all over the world, um, so if you can just describe what you think is the ideal treatment uh, uh, to destroy those microbes eaten away at the, uh, really, the, the um, stratum medium, the, the, um, uh, the unpigmented stratum medium is where it seems to be attacked, isn't it? It is. So I didn't invent anything or come up with anything new, but I, what I did is look in human medicine and see what was done for those same uh, disease processes and and these funguses are vary depending on the environment the season where you are in the world but the fact is there's millions of funguses that we don't even know exist as of yet the main funguses or the main fungus treatment I learned from the the treatment of the the buildings like the buildings that had anthrax or SARS or Legionnaires disease all fungal in in, in, the, in the beginning but uh, they used a, a combination of a stabilized chlorine solution with a mild acid to create chlorine dioxide gas. And what that does is it gets into every little nook and cranny in the buildings. So I took that same product and diluted it and tried it on horses' hooves with great success. And uh, so that became my treatment modality. I mean, it's interesting you said about the, the variety of uh, fungal infections that, that may be involved. And that, that possibly explains why, as farriers, we have this experience sometimes where we uh, debride it all and it grows out and that's the end of the problem. And then other ones, every time we come back, it, it's uh, in fact sometimes aggressively gone beyond where we cut it back to. And so it's never quite the same, is it? No, and you never, it's hard to tell what uh what percentage is plant life, fungi, or animal life, which is secondary issues that have entered that. And most of these are very pH sensitive. So sometimes you can treat them by packing the bottom of the foot with baking soda to make it a more alkaline environment and you destroy the fungus. Well, other times, uh, maybe gauze packed in vinegar, which makes it a very acid environment, will change the environment enough so that you destroy the funguses. But it all depends on the, yeah. the, the type of colonies that you have. But that's certainly, um, I think, a condition that, that all farriers come across in, in all countries to varying degrees. Although, I, I don't know whether you feel it, that damper climates seem to, more humid, humid climates seem to get more. Yes, you don't often see it, say, in Arizona or New Mexico because it's so arid or dry. In arid environments, you don't see so much of it. The other thing is, of course, is that um, I don't have huge experience of donkeys. But certainly in the UK, I mean, the donkey is the desert horse. And you put it in a, in a damp climate, and they get 
CD toe, white line disease, whatever we want to call it, uh, extensively, you know, on all four hooves. Well, that makes sense because they've been bred in a in an arid environment for centuries and they don't have the immunity to it. Yeah. The other thing about the, the donkey is whether it's linked to it is, of course, it has far larger horn tubules. Absolutely. So that may be, and since that's partially what's being attacked, uh, I don't know whether that means there's more gap between the horn tubules, you know, whether they're, they must be less dense and uh, that might be part of it. But, uh, it, as I say, it's something that all farriers are confronted with, so it is good to know that there are treatments for it. Yes, and I appreciate the fact that you wrote a chapter of it in one of your texts, and I was able to work with Dr. Susan Kempson, and, and just yeah. uh, it turned out to be an amazing article, not so much on my side, but with Dr. Kempson yeah. and, and your editing, I think it's a great resource for someone yeah, to go and, and look that's, at. Yeah, and that's of course in corrective farriering. If I've got to do a little um, commercial there. It's, it's, a, it's a valuable resource, whether yeah. you're studying for an exam or just want to improve your knowledge. Now, you, you've just delivered a lecture that I, I sat in on and it was uh, confirmation how it relates to farriery. And, um, I was quite interested because it has intrigued me and um, you were talking about toe-in and toe-out horses, that's an oversimplification, um, but especially the toe-in and I, and I totally agreed that they shunt medially. Now, do you know uh, how, how few um, horses I've seen that have shunted laterally? I mean, they all shunt medially, don't they? Whether they toe in or toe out. Well, well you, I, I shouldn't, you know, what I mean is 99% of them do. Right. Well, as farriers, we get used to the horses that we're working on, the type, breed, discipline. But if we worked on base-wide horses, we might see some real variables. Say, if you worked on Pasifinos or, or the uh, American walking horses, yeah. they tend to be base-wide. And so they have uh, deviations within the hoof, which are quite different than our thoroughbreds or our jumpers. Yeah. Well, I always, uh, and, and of course you mentioned about uh, quarter cracks and, and the, uh, the shearing point being when uh, the distal phalanx, the bone ends and the cartilage starts. So correct me if I've, five minutes after your lecture I'm getting it wrong, Mike. But Well, no, that's exactly what okay. I say. Um, but one thing I have noted over, over the years is that when we call them quarter cracks in thoroughbred racehorses, we almost should really call them heel cracks, because they are a long way back. Yes, they are. But Arabians and uh, warm bloods, they're further forward when they get them. But that can't be because the distal phalanx is uh, proportionately different, or can it be? It can be. Yeah? So if you have a horse with side bone or yeah. some ossification of a, a ligament or a cartilage, they'll be very different. Also, we may have disparity in, in heels, which creates quarter cracks, or the fact that we've rubbed too much of it off in the trimming process and thinned it and weakened it, which allows it to flex and move far more than it should. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I agreed 100% the, the way you described it in your lecture as well, in that the hoof is able to flex to a certain extent, and then it reaches a point where it can only crack. Every yeah. material has its, its limits. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to do some quick-fire questions to you because I said to you before the start of this um, uh, this podcast that uh, you're about number 30 
And although you haven't listened to any of my podcasts, which I was hurt deeply when you told me that, um, I, I, so I could have caught you with all the same questions that I catch everybody else. But I decided that after 30 podcasts, even I need a break. So we're going to do some quick fire questions. Excellent. So, fire away. All right. So uh, radiography or your own eyes? Both. Okay. Every bit of information is important. Loop knife or straight? Both. Loop knife could be used for one part. This is it's not very decisive, this No, <laughs> no, but this is art, and every artist uses their own brush strokes. Okay. <laughs> Barefoot or shoes? Oh, both. <laughs> both, because barefoot can be tremendous. The hoof grows faster and stronger without shoes, though many of our horses require shoes because of what they're asked to do. Hot shoeing or cold shoeing? Both. Both, because uh, there are circumstances, whether it's the horse's behavior or or the environment, that uh, hot shoeing would be uh, not very successful. I might have to rethink that new format in my podcast mic. But anyway, uh, or get some better questions is probably is probably the answer. Now, I, I was also interested in the fact that you discussed um, length of shoe and leverage. Now, I come from a plater's background, and when we shoe penny on a penny, we shoe penny on a penny. And my argument always used to be that a barefoot horse does not have something sticking out the back of its foot. Um, and so I have been intrigued, and you also discussed about uh, length of shoeing cycle, about how long they were going, your heavy horses in your early days, and, and how quickly often shoes are changed now. Um, but, but I'd like you to, to give us your thoughts on, on what can happen if you shoe with too much length. Well, any, any length, in my opinion, is leverage. And so we have to be very careful with how we use it. In fact, I do not use it. I do increase widths of webs or decrease widths of webs in portions of the hoof that are uh, uh, having trouble with the stresses that are applied upon them from the environment or the conformation of the horse. So all of that width of web would be under the foot. I still believe strongly in the perimeter fit. Okay. Um, and. Well, you could tell from my comments the way I think. Of course, horses, if they're going six weeks, need a little bit more length. But I think sometimes we've gone to ridiculous amounts now, and uh, I don't think we're helping our horses. No, we do have fads and fashions that change yeah. by the year. And uh, so if, if you go over four weeks, a great deal of research has been done that we lose a couple of degrees every week, and you may never catch it up. And we try to do it with a rasp, and that's unsuccessful. Okay. Now, uh, on a similar subject, because this has intrigued me, and you actually said uh, uh, you almost use the same words as me about suspensory ligament desmitis. I often say there's an epidemic now. So what are your thoughts about why is this something that we rarely heard of 20 years ago, and yet now... Uh, it seems every sports horse is liable to, to go down with that problem. Well, I think there's quite a few factors. Uh, first and foremost, maybe <clears throat> the farrier that we have, uh, we have some trends that uh, we take the toe back and we leave leverage out the back, which are taking stress off of the deep digital flexor tendon, which puts more on. We have to remember that every tissue is important. Every tissue and moderation is important. 
The next thing is that the environment has changed, or the management, and our sport horses tend to spend a lot of time in the stall not moving, and if you want strength in a tissue, there has to be moderation in movement and constant movement. So, so do you think it's that they're not um, prepared well enough when they're young? In other words, they're not worked enough, so they don't have time to develop the strength in these tissues? Absolutely. They, your horse needs to be conditioned for the work expected of it, and they're not conditioned by standing in a stall or at a round bell chewing away. They need to be out and moving. Yeah. I'd have to say, because I've been intrigued by it, you are about the third person, and uh, there is a, a similar theme to the answers of, from people who have thought about it. Well, that's progress, isn't it? And when we talk about the same things, it means that uh, it may be a direction to look closer at. Absolutely. So, Mike, um, we just listened to uh, a, a great lecture by you, and one of the things that you were talking about was the effect... Uh, on the stance phase and the swing phase uh, between odd-footed horses and how that affects their hoof shape. So I wonder if you can, uh, again, repeat your thoughts on that. Well, there's, there's great research that, uh, from Dr. Mikey Van Heel that suggests that uh, it has to do with the grazing stance and how, how their dominant stance is with one leg forward or the other. There's theories that uh, it may have something to do with how the foal was in the uterus. It, Inevitably, when uh, they are larger, you have one upright foot, one flatter foot. There's also a disparity in the movement of those limbs. One is not extending as much, and that is your more upright foot. Though the duration or the timing of the stride is exactly the same, the flatter foot spends more time in extension, and that uh, was research done by Dr. Willem Bach and several others that uh, suggest that uh, there there is that disparity in the stride. And you can see it in the deviations that occur in the hoof. One gains a great deal of heel, and the other one that's in extension uh, crushes the heel. Okay. Um, because you, you probably know it's a great interest of mine of why horses have odd feet, and especially the upright and the flat foot um, variations of those problems. Now, we're going to come to the deep philosophical question of this podcast. And what I'd like to ask you, Mike, is what do you think is the greatest hurdle that people have to overcome in their lives? Now, the greatest hurdle is having moderation in your life and not excesses so that we have a, a good lifestyle along with a great occupation. And so we end up being a slave to our clients and... and I think in our industry that becomes the greatest obstacle. So how do you overcome it? Well, I uh, I quit several times and uh, I got burnt out from being a slave to my clients and uh, when summer wages ran out then I started up again. So each time I tried to change my behavior and think more about some free time and moderating my client numbers to help me out in so many ways. Okay, that's great advice. Thanks, Mike. Um, now, uh, you spent some time here in Denmark and you said you uh, tried to learn the language and uh, you actually introduced yourself uh, in Danish just an hour or so ago. So I'm going to test your Danish now and I'd like you to say to me in Danish, uh, the hoof capsule changes due to stress. 
hoen skifta med hver eneste, uh, yeah, I'm lost here, so I'm... Well, I didn't give you any warning. <laughs> yeah, that, so. <laughs> I'd have to think about that. It has been 20-some years since I lived here. Now we don't, we're an excuse-free zone. Yes, we now. are, yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway. And uh, a no-judgment zone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, of course. Look, Mike, it's been uh, great catching up with you and uh, great just going through a few things. Um, you've achieved a huge amount in your life and uh, earned an awful lot of respect from farriers in more than one country. So I'm really grateful for you giving your time and, and speaking to us. Thank well, you. Well, I thank you. Uh, you're welcome, but I appreciate the uh, the learning experiences that the Worshipful Company of Farriers has given me and uh, the pressure that was put on me and the challenge that was exhibited and, and uh, the fact that uh, I was held to a standard and uh, I wasn't given anything. No. I appreciate that. And of course, if we ever, ever lowered the standard, then we've been disrespectful for all those who came before. So we Absolutely. don't do that. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you again, Mike. Thank you. Well, it was, uh, in terms of this podcast nowadays, quite a short interview, but thinking back on it, it, it covered so much. Uh, we talked about quarter cracks, we talked about the differences in donkeys and horses' hooves, about the tubules. Of course, we um, covered, which is, is something of his speciality, or at least uh, it was Mike's subject for his uh fellowship thesis, uh, we talked a lot about infections of the hoof wall, uh, what might be the cause, and especially treatment, which is important to all of us all over the world. But we also talked about the length of shoes, and uh, Mike certainly has an opinion which I do not disagree with about the length of shoeing, in other words, how much heel length we give shoes. And we, we even got round to suspensory ligament desmitis, uh, mismatched feet, why we have these horses with a difference. Um, so we covered a huge amount because he's a very, very knowledgeable chap. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I certainly got a great deal out of just talking to Mike Wildenstein. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening. Just remember that if you want to get a free copy of the Farrier's Journal, a magazine that goes out in seven different languages, you only have to apply through us at sjcurtisbooks at gmail.com and we'll sort that out.